HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And before we begin today's show, I just have to give a shout-out to my listeners in Budapest. I think that's so cool. It just goes to show you never know who's listening. So hello to you, and we love hearing from you. And today, as we are... Uh, recording this. It is December 15th. Is it December? Yes, it's December 15th. And we are in the throes of the holiday season, buying gifts and decorations and celebrations of this joyful season. And of course, thinking about dinner, always thinking about dinner, or about feasts, uh, if not a feast, at least a special dinner. And here in America, we owe a lot of our modern traditional celebrations to large part Charles Dickens, who really popularized uh, the secular or the, the secularization of the Christmas holiday into a time of, of really joyful seasons and uh, feelings and charity, along, of course, with the Christmas goose and the Christmas turkey and plum puddings. But these feasts were certainly not his invention. Um, to paraphrase Lynn Oliver, who writes the Food Timeline online, that, my words, modern feasts, as with food, are not invented, they evolve. And, of course, Christmas feasts are no exception. They had a lot taken from, of course, past celebrations, whether they be pagan celebrations or religious celebrations. And today I have with me someone to teach us a little bit more about that and talk some more about some of the feasts of the past, and that's Clifford Wright. Clifford is a food historian and an author of 14 and counting books that he's written, and many of them, he's also written for many food journals such as uh, Severe and Gastronomica, 
and he is a regular contributor to the web ezine zesterdaily.com. One of Clifford's books that uh, that has won many awards and is truly, I have to say, uh, my favorite and a go-to source is A Mediterranean Feast, the story of the birth of the celebrated cuisines of the Mediterranean. And in 2009, he launched the Venice Cooking School out in California with Martha Rose Schulman. He's kind of the go-to source for Mediterranean food history. Um, And he does have a website called cliffordawright.com. And he's with us here today from by phone from California. Welcome, Clifford. Well, thank you, Linda. It's a pleasure to talk to you. So... Tell me where, according to the sources that you have uh, read, and we've all you know done research, but everyone, there are a lot of myths out there, too. Where did it all begin, and when did it all begin, this celebration of Christmas? Well, it's interesting. There's two things we're talking about here. We're talking about the celebration of Christmas, and then uh, we're talking no. about Christmas. The feast. So I'm talking about Christmas. <laughs> Christmas, as we all know, or as we all should know, is Christ's Mass. It's this celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ on December 25th in Western Christian churches. And it really is sort of a quintessential Mediterranean holiday, uh, because it all begins with um, a saint of the 4th century, named St. Nicholas, who was born in uh, today's Turkey, and he evolved into Santa Claus. Then, at some point, feasts began associated. So Christmas, we know, was not observed before 200 A.D. Mm-hmm. So for some two centuries, Christmas was not a holiday. And then for um, almost a thousand years, um, Christmas was a minor holiday. Then sometime in the Middle Ages, it began to become a more popular holiday, uh, equaling Easter in importance. And that's when you begin finding some of the traditions that we associate with Christmas today, such as the the traditional foods, the Yule log, the holly, the mistletoe, the giving of gifts, the singing of carols. Now, all of those traditions are a contribution of English-speaking countries. The Christmas tree is a German contribution. And the Santa Claus we know is actually a contribution of the Dutch in 17th century mm-hmm. New York. So all of these different traditions kind of meld together to create, uh, as you pointed out earlier, through the impetus of Dickens, is a secular holiday as well. So Christmas is not only a Christian holiday, it's also an important secular holiday for many people, right. especially those people who aren't Christians. Well, and for so many years, even before uh, 200 AD, the, the Feast of Saturnalia, the... the um the winter solstice was uh, we sort of took our lead from from that celebration much the you know the planting of new seeds and and the new harvest to come exactly and many uh religious celebrations and feasts have their origins in pagan holidays right. and they transformed over time into something that was more religious and then of course they got associated with certain uh phenomena that has to do with christian thought and the, one example of course is uh fish and why fish is so important around Christmas, especially in the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. Maybe not so much with us, but uh, us in North America. And one of the reasons for that, uh, the reason that so much Christmas food revolves around fish is because of the symbology of fish and Christological thought, namely Christ is the fisher of men. So you have a lot of traditions that revolve around fish. Uh, in, In Italy, you have big deal fish dishes such as uh, eel or uh, a lot of people, a lot of Italian Americans like to talk about the Feast of the Seven Fishes. Mm-hmm. 
which is celebrated on Christmas Eve. It's kind of curious because it's basically unknown in Italy. It's almost totally an Italian-American tradition. Uh, if you were to talk about the Festa dei Sette Pesci, the Feast of the Seven Fishes to an Italian, they'd scratch their head and wouldn't know what you're talking about. <laughs> right, right. Of course, they had to fast. I mean, and they wanted to go to mass, so they, you know, they'd have to fast. And then, for a time, fish was okay. They could eat the fish, but they couldn't have any meat. It makes sense. But it's interesting. Having lived in Rome for a long time, I, I never heard of this through all the Christmases that I was there. Not as you say. Not until I came back to New York did I hear about this festival. Exactly. Of I had heard it here, and um, I'd never heard of it in Italy, where I've spent some time. It's interesting. Well, uh, so back. I mean. Of course, the the feasts and the celebrations changed and altered a lot with who was the reigning power at the time and and different religious edicts that came about from you know one one era to another. But what were some of the um, going from country to country that but in the Mediterranean some of the the dishes or the interesting um, uh, feasts that they had that might have some relation to today's foods. Well, as you said earlier, it's quite true. You know, dishes and feasts aren't born. They evolve. Mm -hmm. And so the foods that were eaten 800 years ago are very different than the foods we would eat today. But we know something about it from uh, a variety of different sources. So, for instance, in, um, in Spain, in 1611, we know from uh, an author of a cookbook, Francisco Motinho, who is the master chef to King Philip III, uh, actually, we have a menu from the Christmas banquet, which oh. consisted of um, uh, ham, ola podrida, which was stew, and still exists today, incidentally, with that name. Mm. There was uh, roast turkey with its gravy. Now, that must have been new. Because I was going to say 1600s. We, they, turkeys were just introduced to Europe around that time. Uh, mm-hmm. it's probably the turkeys had only been introduced maybe 50 years before uh-huh. at that time. So, you know... This is 1611 we're talking about, so turkeys are arriving in Europe about 1550 or so. Uh, They would have little veal puff pastry pies, roast pigeons and bacon, uh, bird tartlets that were served over whipped cream soup, um, roast partridges. They had a dish called caperotada, which is a batter of herbs and eggs that is deep-fried. Hmm. Uh, pork loins, sausages, roast suckling pig. And mind you, this is all one feast they're eating. <laughs> I'm not describing several. This is one dinner. Uh, sugar and cinnamon soup, uh, puff pastry with pork lard, roast chickens. That was the first course. Oh then the God. second course consisted of roast capons, a hard-baked cake with quince sauce, chicken with stuffed to escarole, empanadas, roast veal with arugula sauce, Seed cake of veal sweetbread and livers of small animals. This is, these are direct translations, by the way. Roast, th- sorry, roast thrush over sopa dorada, which means a highly colored soup. Then they had quince pastries, German-style birds, which we're not sure what that means. Yeah, what? Well, <laughs> Fried trout with bacon fat. Okay, I'm hungry. I'm right. right I'm that, hungry. That's only the second course. <laughs> then you have to go on to the third course which consists of chicken stuffed with bacon-fried bread, roast veal udder, minced bird meat with lard, drowned pigeons, stuffed goat, citron tarts, sea bream stew, rabbit with capers, pig feet empanadas, dove in black sauce, um, and it goes on and well, on. I'm, obviously, these were feasts for uh, uh, lots of members of the court. and was, Lots of members of the court, exactly. And also family. a level of cooking that you would not find among the local population. Right. This was 
truly at the very top of the culinary hierarchy. Well, certainly a sumptuous feast, and and uh, uh, and that's not unlike many of the uh, the courts around the Mediterranean, right? Exactly. I mean, it, uh, one of the problems with so much food history is that we have wonderful records of how the very rich and the aristocracy ate, mm-hmm. and and very little about how. 99% of the other people ate. That's right. You research yeoman's uh, lunches and you'll get a, you know, a dish of gruel and that's about all you yeah, know, right? Exactly. I mean, it would be like a thousand years from now if someone finds a menu from, from Jean-Georges and right. believes that that's what people ate every day. Uh, you know, it's just not true. What people ate every day was really not even cuisine. It was subsistence. Right, right. Well, uh, as we go around the, um, the Mediterranean, where... Talk about some of the other um, traditions. Let's say uh, I don't know in well in Sicily or or um, in Greece. There were, you, I read somewhere that you had written some interesting things about. Um, well, I guess the Crusades or some of the work that that influenced that, um, or as we go as we look into France. I mean, certainly France had some some interesting traditions. Um, they, I know they do quite a few dishes that involve uh, nuts. Oh, candy, sweets. That's what I wanted to touch on, the sweets. You um, talked about um, sugar and how sugar was so important, and that became a, a gift-giving or an increased um, uh, dish that appeared at the holiday time. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, a lot of the traditions um, tend to be the same, except, that the differences are really based on culinary type of differences. So uh, sweets were popular just because um, it was a reminder of the sweetness. Now, if you're talking from a religious sense, the sweetness of being saved by Christ. But on the other hand, from a culinary point of view, uh, who doesn't like sweets? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, everyone likes sweets. So you would find, you would often find sweets on on the uh, on the table after dinner, and when I say the table, that's already just right there a reference to a higher level of uh, society, because poor people wouldn't eat at tables. So that's something to keep in mind when you think of traditions. Now I'm not talking about today, of course, where uh, poverty uh, in most of the Mediterranean has either been eradicated or is at a very low level, mm-hmm. but it certainly wasn't the case, you know, 800 years ago when some of these traditions are beginning. But for sweets, I mean, in in place like Naples, you have uh, mustaccioli, which is a spicy fruit and nut pastry, um, which is mostly from Rome. You have struffoli in Naples. You have bucciolati, which are fig-filled pastries from Sicily. And then, mm-hmm. of course, in Milan, you have the famous uh, panettone, the Christmas right. bread, which is really known known everywhere. And uh, you know, it's interesting in terms of how um, people are eating it. it it's more or less the same tradition throughout the Mediterranean when it comes to Christmas. And the differences have to do with what's being eaten. So, uh, you know, in a place like Greece, many special foods are, are being made for Christmas. In fact, you could write a book on nothing but Greek foods of Christmas. And, but in Greece, Christmas isn't as important as Easter, so you're not going to find a wide range as you do at Easter time. But, for instance, you do have things like uh, Sahara Kulura, which are sugar cookies made in Greece for Christmas. Uh, lots of nut and honey sweets are popular. Um, there is a, 
in the Peloponnese is a really elaborate Christmas bread called Cristosomo, mm-hmm. which is made with fine white flour, sesame seeds, aniseed, orange, cloves, cinnamon. Those are typical spices used in Greek cookery, especially around the holidays. And then for things that are not sweet, more typical of just being on the table are uh, you know, sausages and uh, pig's feet and things like that. Yeah, there. I mean, there are interesting traditions throughout the world that you know of dishes that are um, that are special at that time. But um, back to the sugar, only because I love torrone, and that that's a popular um, sugar and, and almond treat that comes out at Christmas time throughout Italy. And uh, but you mentioned there was something in the um, I think it was early 16th century, maybe by a master sugarer. Um, oh yeah, that's a wonderful story, oh, and again, that. it's a it's a type of story that comes from these higher levels of society. But we have evidence from a Christmas in 1515 uh, when a guy named Bartholomew Blanche, who was a master sugarer to the king, prepared this menu. And we what we don't know here is is this something that was done every Christmas or was this a special one time only affair? But he he took tuna tongue and made a confit of it, which was preserved in sugar, <laughs> and then stored in earthenware pots. And uh, you also have evidence of um, other kinds of fantastic uh, dishes being made with lots of sugar. Um, now, on a l- sort of a lower level, you have, um, you know, peasant cooking, which is uh, very simply an extension of a solstice festival. Mm-hmm. And, but the ritual foods, even in, in a place like Provence, um, are, are pretty clear from way back, mortadella. Uh, the first evidence we have of a mortadella being made is from the statutes of the Cathedral of Nice in 1233. So that, and as a Christmas food. And, interesting. Uh, it, which is interesting because we don't think of it as particularly Christmassy no. these days. All right. Um, so it does, though, you know, things do change. Lasagna in Italy, of course, is very popular um, for, um, for Christmas, right. and, and eel as well. Eel is very popular throughout the, Medi- the northern range of the Mediter- Mediterranean, mm-hmm. uh, especially in a place like Venice, where grilled eels for Christmas uh, are very popular. In fact, the, the doge, Andrea Gridi, apparently died in 1538, uh, a few days after Christmas, because he ate too many grilled eels on Christmas Eve. So you've got these nice little stories about the dangers of overeating. Right. Well, and then of course, um, in in let's say in the in the 1600s or so, they would serve lasagna would also be served, but it would be served with cinnamons and sugar and and nuts, perhaps, and not the lasagna that we're aware of. Yeah, and actually, there's a, a tradition in in the Veneto, which is the region which Venice is the capital of uh, in northern Italy. Uh, where they serve a lasagna called lasagna al fornel, which is actually uh, made with apples and other fruit. Hmm. And it's not served as, as a dessert. It's served as a first course on Christmas Eve. And and then you go on to the main meal. And that's like a, noodle, kind of, a noodle pudding, right? <laughs> and it's, it's kind of like a noodle pudding. Yeah. And uh, uh, those kinds of traditions you find only around um, Christmas. Uh, these highly sweetened dishes or very typical dishes that are made over and over again. Right. Well, this is making me very hungry, and we're going to come back and talk more about these wonderful feast dishes after we take a short break. Stay with us.
when you open the bottle and you drink the wine, it speaks for itself. Is it, you know, a wine that's made for food? Yes. Those types of wines are tend to be more rustic or have a little bit more body. Are there wines that are just pure out hedonistic pleasure? Sure, there's wines like that that maybe from California that are more cocktail wines or wines that are just big jammy fruit bombs. And those, I think, appeal to a certain group of people as well. I think the wines that Barberhouse specializes in is more of these food-friendly, you know, rustic-style, um, biodynamic, organic wines that tend to be a bit more earthy, come from some place. So you can almost taste the terroir. You can almost feel this guy, this Sancerra, was grown in this slaty, rocky soil. And so, to me, that's the exciting part, that the wine feels like it comes from someplace. Okay, we are back. We had a little commercial in there with the music, so I hope we didn't confuse people too much. Um, But we're back talking with Clifford Wright about Christmas feasts of the past. And Clifford, I wonder, do you... um, I. in doing some research before the show, I was reading about the um, the Boar's Head festivals. Do you know any? That's that's not the Mediterranean. We're going a little further north there, but wonder if you have done any reading on that. No, I don't know too much about okay. that. But I just wanted to get back a moment to the sweets that you had mentioned oh, earlier, please. because I forgot to mention uh, one of the most famous sweets of Christmas is uh, what the Italians call the Torone, or the Spanish call the Turan, mm-hmm. which is the almond um, uh, egg white. Uh, sugar combination that's a nice kind of candy sometimes soft sometimes hard and that's very popular in spain and in italy uh, so popular in spain in fact that um, king philip the third who i had mentioned earlier actually sent a note to the viceroy of valencia that um, they should consider distributing more sweets and more Turan among the poor to celebrate christmas and that is actually one of the the impetus behind the prodigious Turan production in Spain that oh. continues to this day. But about the, the boar's head, I'm not too familiar with, uh, uh, which is sort of ironic given where most of our American traditions <laughs> come from, but I'm not too familiar with boar's head, probably because I have such a hard time getting boar's head. just just doesn't seem to be held in the supermarket these days. <laughs> no, indeed not. But um, I just see so many... Uh, some photograph or paintings of you know the boar's head presented on a platter all decorated up and it just in reading then i realized that it was a um, it was associated with a, a christmas feast when they would serve the whole boar yeah. yeah you know if you want to really kind of expand the notion of christmas feast i mean we really should also look at northern europe which i unfortunately don't know too much about mm-hmm. but uh, you'll find there's a huge number of christmas cakes and cookies made especially in scandinavia um, which are I know just a little bit about because my grandmother was Finnish, and so I kind of have some sense of what these were. And they, a lot of the spices used in these were spices we associate with either the Mediterranean or the East, such as cardamom and uh, aniseed and so forth. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Interesting. that, um, And a lot of those uh, northern sweets, well, the one is the, the ring cake or the, the king cake. Yes, that's a very, very well-known cake, the king cake, which actually is pretty well-known in New Orleans these days. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, but I think, uh, it, I, I think it found its way down into the, um, the southern holds of, of Europe as well, just because it was a fun thing to do, to bury a, a prize in the cake, and then, you know, whoever would find it. Right. Hopefully not I actually, I actually remember that very well from my childhood when my, uh, we 
we were stationed in France in the 1950s when my father was in the Air Force, and I remember distinctly uh, the little prize buried in cakes uh, at Christmas time that we would cut open. We were more interested in the prize mm-hmm. than in the cake, which in a way was kind of silly because the prize was just a little coin. But uh, it was the expectation of finding something that made it all so exciting. Yeah. Well, you um, you know, Goethe wrote his wonderful uh, book about traveling through Italy, the Italian journey, um, kind of his journal of, of his grand tour, his grand travels. Right. And you made some mention of his of his reactions to some of the the festival, the, some of the wonderful feasts that um, from Naples in particular. Yeah, it's it's really kind of fun. It's in his book Italian Journey, which kind of chronicles his his travels through uh, through Italy and uh, what he tells us about. He was happened to be in Naples at Christmas time. And I'll just quote because it's kind of fun. Uh, he tells us that the Neapolitans are famous for their orgies of gluttony. <laughs> At such times, a general cocagna is celebrated in which 500,000 people vow to outdo each other. I'll explain what cocagna means in a minute. Uh, the Toledo, which is street in Naples, and other streets and squares are decorated most appetizingly. Vegetables, raisins, melon, figs piled high. Uh, huge paternosters of gilded sausages tied with red ribbons, capons with little red flags stuck in their rumps are suspended in festoons across the street overhead. I was assured that not counting those which people had fattened in their own homes, 30,000 of them had been sold. Crowds of donkeys laden with vegetables, capons, young lambs are driven to market, and never in my life have I seen so many eggs in one pile as I have seen here in several places? And then he goes down and talks about the macaroni and the, and it's it's wild. I mean, the kinds of foods that he's eating. Uh, but to talk about cocagna, cocagna was a fable um, from the Middle Ages, and it was called the Land of Cocagna, which was a utopia where no one ever went hungry and. Uh, the mountains were made out of macaroni, and everything was about food. So the reference to cocagna is basically a reference to well-being and to being well-fed. Mm. Well, it's certainly, uh, you know, visions of sugar plums dance in their head. I mean, you know, feasts and, and sweets, uh, are, are they're in all of our nursery rhymes and, and carols and songs and um, and not to forget, you know, the punches and the and the wassail bowl and the tastes and yes, exactly. Uh, and this is really a, a, a sort of a, a leftover, a remnant of how special the feasting was on Christmas. You know, today we we take it all kind of for granted, um, but there was a time uh, for most of the history of of Christmas when people couldn't couldn't afford food. Right. And we're living on subsistence, subsistence, and this was the one time of the year when you could have the visions of sugar plums, as as the rhyme goes. Right. Well, and you did mention when you were talking about the Tyrone, and particularly in in Spain, that of course sugar was the uh, the cause of of many political economic uh, battles too. But that you said uh, one of the, the I think it was one of the kings had. Um, suggested that these candies be passed out to the poor as as gifts right. at Christmas time. You know, I have to tell you that even today, well, not, not today, but, you know, 30, 40 years ago, the Christmas festivals in the piazzas throughout, well, at Rome at least, that I know of, they basically were Taroni festivals. I mean, everyone brought their own recipe for making it. They'd make the Tyrone, this candy right there on the spot, often pulling the taffy, you know, and, and forming the logs. And so this sugary 
sweet was very much associated with the still with the Christmas festival. And, yeah, uh, and for many years too, the sugar was you know sugar was considered a spice. Um, mm-hmm. We don't think of it as a spice today, and a luxury, and it was yeah. a relatively expensive spice. Mm-hmm. So using things with sugar were very special. Right, indeed. Uh, there, I mean, we can go on and on about um, different individual dishes, but basically, it's the fact that the feast was a a, a very well, Christmas was a very special time for people to to throw a big feast, and and it does continue in large part today. I, what are you having on your table at Christmas time this year? Oh, we're cheating this year. <laughs> I actually, I'm doing the cooking, and I I asked everyone, do you mind if we don't do anything traditional, and I can just knock off a few recipe tests? <laughs> always and working, always they working. They all asked, well, what? <laughs> so I told them what. They said, sounds good to me. So <laughs> well, we are. I'm I'm cheating because I have a captive audience uh, to eat a couple of recipe tests. That's that great. Are involved. They're involved, and I need someone to eat all this stuff. <laughs> I have no doubt. Uh, but, but we do it. We do a little family tradition uh, on Christmas Eve that we kind of dreamt up ourselves, which is we have fondue. We have fondue oh, once nice. a year. We have it on Christmas Eve, and uh, the reason we like to do it is it doesn't involve any work on the part of the cook because all the guests do all the prep, and then uh, the eating it is, of it, of course, is quite joyous and silly and fun and uh, <laughs> it sounds it sounds like a great invention to me and i'm sure you didn't invent it clifford I'm i sure. don't think i invented it no <laughs> I'm sure it evolved so, it'll be a fun thing now last year i had to test a a raclette recipe a swiss mm. raclette but we did it in the authentic way of holding a wheel of cheese in front of an open fire right. in my living room. A little messy. And <laughs> it was it was a near disaster, but um, in the pictures we have it of me yelling at everyone to help me. Uh, but it was a lot of fun. Oh, that's great. Well, on, on our table uh, this year, we're going to have goose, a Christmas goose. And it's funny because I was reading, I was thinking, well, but can, can we have the goose Christmas Eve? I mean, is that like throwing all caution to the wind here for Christmas Eve. <laughs> and and actually, in reading, I found out that, Chris, that goose was often served on Christmas Eve, and I, don't ask me which country. I, I forget which country I was reading about. Must have been in England. But it sounds like it. It was, and whether, you know, and so much of this is folklore and, and myth, but the it's a beautiful, fun myth. The folklore around the goose is that it was okay to serve it on Christmas Eve because it was really a seabird. And I'm thinking a seabird. I said, well, yeah, kind of. Maybe it grew on a tree, and when it became plump and ripe, it dropped down into the water and <laughs> floated around in the water. And they said, so consequently, it is fish, not not meat, and you can serve it on Christmas Eve. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, a tradition in the making. A uh, Christmas <laughs> goose is actually a wonderful thing to serve. And one of the problems I find is it's hard finding um, geese. Yes, and I almost always have to special order it. Uh, not that I mind doing that, but mm-hmm. a goose is a wonderful thing. Yeah, I know. I know where you can order heritagefoodsusa.com. That's right. And I, in fact, <laughs> I have ordered from them before. Yeah. So it was that's a good great. deal. Okay. Well, that's wonderful. It was. It was fun talking to you about all these traditions, and I'm sure. I hope it inspires people to kind of look into some of their family's traditions and find out maybe where they came from, because everything's got a past, right? <laughs> That's right, and at the very least, we made everyone hungry. That's we sure did, sure, and me particularly. Right. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Clifford, and thank, thank everyone. You, thanks everyone for listening. And again, it's been a taste of the past.
This is a message from Sea to Table. Can the fish come back to South Street? On December 18th, the New Amsterdam Market will pay homage to the Old Fulton Fish Market by including a special section dedicated to the fisheries of the Northeast and New England with Sea to Table. Sea to Table partners with fishermen in the recovering fisheries of the Northeast. Their transparent model, delivering fish direct from docks to chefs across America, supports the traditional fisheries that are crucial to the survival of our working waterfronts. For the first time, Sea to Table will join the market to offer fresh fish direct from independent Northeast fishermen. The collaboration of Sea to Table with New Amsterdam will take us back in time for a day to the era when fishmongers dominated Lower Manhattan. So stop by the New Amsterdam market at Peck Slip and South Street in Manhattan on December 18th and support your local fishermen and fisheries. For more information on Sea to Table, visit www.c2table.com. That's C-S-E-A, the number two, table.com.